This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clove the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who then will bring charges against me. Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Come on, good morning, everybody. I expect a response. I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, during college, I was introduced to this idea of servant leadership, servant leadership. Um, and I've recently come to appreciate this quality in one of my bosses, um, in my counseling work that I do. Definitely not afraid to get into the trenches with us very collaboratively minded. Uh, so if you're stuck trying to help a client, so get right in there and try to understand the situation rather than giving you fly-by-night advice. Um, she's driven more by values rather than profit. One example is how flexible she is in our, our cab policy. So usually the rule is we can help pay for transportation for someone to get to a local detox facility but the key word there is local, right? We can only help people get into local facilities, but my boss will take the rap for, and, and she'll approve longer distance rides if nearby detoxes are full. She'll take an earful from our bosses um, for a lot of the things that, that serve our clients ultimately, that don't strictly serve the bottom line of the company. She'll listen and then articulate why she thinks that going the extra mile for people in crisis reinforces our value in the community and promotes our continued existence as an organization more than avoiding profit loss. Her style is to assume positive intentions, to empower others, 
and to motivate change by modeling it. Um, so you'll be um, empathic and good with, exhibit good boundaries. When, when that one client who calls every single day calls again and everyone else is too exhausted to pick up the phone. Um, I think the value of this type of leadership is the way it can shape an organization, uh, cre create a culture where everyone feels heard and appreciated and valued, respected. I think it pushes us to, to provide better care um, to our clients. Since she doesn't let herself get off the hook, let herself get away with shortcuts and funny business, neither do we. Perhaps, as we look at our passage, there, there's no better servant leader than Jesus, whose ministry is foretold in the book of Isaiah. This morning, as we continue our journey in listening to the prophets, we will pause and soak in this servant song. So there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. They're called songs because they're very poetic. They're, they even have a song-like quality to them, very much like the Psalms. These are messianic songs, which we can say this side of Calvary point most fully to Jesus. The most familiar servant song, maybe you know it, it's in Isaiah chapters 20, uh, 52 and 53. Um, here's, here's a line from it. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. And it goes on to say, yet he bore our sickness, he carried our pains, but we regarded him stricken, struck down and by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. So there are three, three other servant songs in Isaiah besides that one that's most familiar. And I, your homework is to look them up. Look them up and figure out where they are. Learn a little bit more about the servant psalms. Our passage, it includes the third servant song. And I'm going to work through it verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open. I'm going to be starting in verse 4. In verse 4, we see that God has given his servants the tongue of those who are taught. And we see that this servant gets up every morning to hear as those who are taught, to listen. In verse 5, this is reiterated. The Lord God has opened my ears. You know, this reminds me of the obedience of Jesus. Um, in John's gospel, Jesus says, I do what I see the Father doing. You know, that takes some listening. He is one that leaves the company of his disciples in the early hours of the morning to pray. And I also imagine to st study the scriptures. In this way, he lives with ears open, waiting for instruction from God. There are various uh, songs of innocence throughout the Bible. So this is one of them, songs of innocence. In verse 5 uh, of the servant, he says, I was not rebellious. I, I turned not backward. You know, it's funny. As Reformed Christians, we confess not our innocence, but we confess our sin and our weakness before God. Job, David, the suffering servant, I mean, they did the opposite sometimes. They sang of their, of, of their faithfulness to God. What do, what do we make of that? A song of innocence. It makes sense within the context of covenant, marked by blessings and cursings, which is marked by retributive justice. Um, it's usually sang by somebody who doesn't believe they're getting what they deserve in terms of the, 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 in the terms of the covenant. Um, so they usually cry out because their life is marked by trials 
and suffering. And that theme is brought out in verse 6. Despite his innocence, this servant of God is being tortured and humiliated. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Yikes, I can like feel that. <laughs> I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This servant was flogged. His beard was pulled out. In this way, his face was subject to disgrace and humiliation. And beyond that, he was spat on, which is a symbol uh, of condescension in many cultures. And so this servant calls on God, the same way that David called on God in the Psalms. In verse 7, he sings, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. You know, that, that verse is amazing. Um, a person that surrenders himself completely to the justice system of God. Um, a person whose, whose response to unjust torture is simply to trust God. That word for flint in verse 8, halamish, it's a Hebrew word for stone that's mined. It's worked out with picks and shovels. I mean, if a mine being excavated is what is happening to this servant's face, it is a horrifying image, is it not? It's torture. There's no other word for it. It's torture. And there's just such a strong contrast between this servant's probable fate, which is death by torture, and the statement, I will not be put to shame. This servant is confident because he trusts in God's vindication, which happens in God's own timing, and it's better than revenge served cold. You see, there, there's always a higher court to hold in view. In verse 8, the suffering servant asks, Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You know, that's closer proximity than I would care for with my adversaries. Thank you very much. This servant is holding in view a court scene, a setting where brutality, it doesn't exist, but where the person's innocence can be measured fairly. He says this in verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me, and asks again, Who will declare me guilty? But this time he contends that all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And you know, when I'm reading this verse, at first it appears like he believes God's going to rescue him from his tormentors. But you know, that's not necessarily the case. He says his tormentors will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them up. But this same exact language is used just a few short verses later in chapter 51, verse 6. It says, lift your eyes up to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The, the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. You know, it's that exact same language. This servant, he knew that his tormentors, his accusers, would eventually vanish like smoke. They would eventually wear out like a garment. But consider that he uses those same two metaphors to describe the lifespan of the earth. He knows their eventual fate, but this doesn't imply that he, feels, he knows he's going to be rescued from his present torture. It's very possible that the singer is aware that, his, that the timeline for his vindication is a not-now timeline. You know, time is a funny thing. There are days when it crawls and days when it flies. Um, but when we hold up uh, 
in the light of eternity, our life is actually pretty short. This servant knew that God's justice is the most important thing that any of us need to concern ourselves about. Even if human courts deny justice, even if human courts take life rather than give it and restore, there's always a higher court in view. So when we think about this servant song, God enabled his servant to endure pain and torment, which is unjust, not deserved. And God has given his servant a confidence to endure it with the promise that his vindicating presence will be there, which spills over into eternity. Now, these last two verses are very interesting. Um, verses 10 and 11, this servant makes a wager and sets himself as God's mouthpiece. He asks, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of this servant? So put another way, this says, who listens, as in verse 4, to the tongue of the one who is instructed, to the one who awakens each morning to hear as, as those who are taught. Again, here's the template of a prophet one who listens to God and speaks the words of God. And it's really interesting what he says, what comes next. He says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. It seems like light is being used to describe one's life condition or one's environment. The, the suffering servant can be said to be walking in darkness because his situation and his torment are difficult to endure. Of course, of course, earlier in the song, he reconciles himself with eternity, the coming hope that gives him strength to endure. God's people have perspective. But in a sense, we get that his journey is dark. His journey's dark. And he invites others to take this dark journey with him. Not because it's easy, but because this is the path of God's covenant people. I think when he describes those walking with no light, it describes the here and now of the journey. Oh, it's interesting. That's different than the way you, the Bible usually talks about light and darkness. We can think about people around the world in countries marked by conflict and insecurity. Perhaps these are people walking in darkness with no light. What is his call to people in situations that feel hopeless? Trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on God. God's promises endure beyond the grave, so be people of the covenant. Be people who keep in mind God's good will towards us. How will we endure and these, these trials that face us? Well, we know that God is near, so we don't lose hope. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And in contrast to this, there are those who kindle a fire in verse 11. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. You know, if you follow this word picture um, as a metaphor for God's call to endure trials faithfully, well, what, what is it to kindle a fire? What is it to equip ourselves with torches? What is it to walk by the light of our own fire? That word equip yourselves, azar, can, can also mean to encompass, um, which paints an interesting image of community. Someone encircled with torchlight. You can almost picture a mob with torchlight. That's a better thing to have in mind because the you in, in verse 11 is actually a plural you. 
This is a word to a nation that has rejected God's servant. This is the image of a people who together have found something else besides God to rely on. This isn't simply the image of a person who has decided to cheat on their taxes for personal gain. This is the image of a nation for no tolerance for the man who is telling everyone else to stop cheating on their taxes. This is a nation that tortures those saying God would have them do this or that. This is a mob that would torture God himself if given the chance. It's interesting to me that, that verse 10 bids people in the singular to walk in darkness and trust the name of the Lord. And verse 11 describes people in the plural who delude themselves with the false security that comes from power and politics. It's a reminder that faithfulness can be personally costly. The motivation to endure trials has to come purely from, from hoping God's future, not in some human program. And finally, at the, the end of verse 11, we have the, the fate of the corrupt nation, the tormentors who will not hear a word from God, who will not submit themselves to a higher authority, who menace the earth with a false security. We get a reversal of fates. This is what God says. He says, in my courts, this is what you have for my hand. You will lie down in torment. The word here, lie down, is, is to speak of death. When we, when we think of this, um, it's a warning of the wager of our ultimate security. You can trust in him, you can trust in God, or you can live as though he doesn't exist. You can endure a trial, or you can join the system that causes suffering for those who, who seek to please God. You don't get both options. It's faithfulness to God's salvation or it's faithfulness to the salvation of your own making. Now, I, I want to consider how we apply this, this passage. The, the, the first audience of this passage is in exile in Babylon. But unlike the servant in this passage, Judah is told, so the, the servant, he, he sings this song of his own innocence, but unlike that servant, Judah is told they are in an exile of their own making. Their exile was there because of their sin. That's what verse, verses 1 and 2 and 3 indicate. Um, so against the supposed reasons for why they're in exile in verse 2, that God is absent, that God is powerless, I mean, God reminds them that he can dry up the sea with a matter of his words. In verse 1, he reminds them that, like in the case of a divorce, they were sent away. Like a debtor, they were sold off to pay their debt. In verse 3, God says that he isn't absent. He is mourning. As skies blackened with rain cloud, he's dressed like those who are in mourning. While Judah in exile could relate to some of the conditions of the suffering servant, they surely could not sing a song of innocence. Judah's hope for deliverance was not based on their own merit, but from that of the suffering servant. This was their word of hope, but I think that they misunderstood it. We know that during the life of Jesus, even his disciples longed for deliverance from the Roman occupation so that Israel would be free. But why? Surely those who were in the Babylonian exile longed for deliverance, returned to the promised land. But why? The disciples wanted a warrior Messiah cast in the mold of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. 
But what they get instead, their deliverer, is a servant who bids them to follow him at great personal cost, to walk in darkness and having no light to trust in the name of the Lord. God's people long for deliverance, but I think we can misunderstand God's purpose, which is not to parade a nation in a celebration of its own significance. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, a servant and a witness to God. Jesus, the true Israel, came as a slave. He said not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He taught that if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. During Lent, we are bid to look long at the cross, to see Jesus and the pain he endured for us, for our sakes. But so too are we called into the mystery of the path he laid for us to follow. In our passage, the paradox of the Christian faith is introduced and immediately misunderstood. <laughs> Deliverance comes not by the sword, by power and might, but by suffering, through pain. Salvation comes through a cross. Life comes from death, a profound mystery that's enacted when we're baptized, buried with Christ, dead to sin, dead to our worldly ambitions, our pride. And coming out of the water, we're joined with Christ in life, choosing the path of self-denial, servanthood, little deaths, where we exalt God instead of ourselves. Jesus opens up the way for his king to his kingdom, but the path we tread is the path of the cross the way of bloody backs and pulled out beards. Now last week I waxed poetic on the idea of fat spirituality, a life turned inwards. And I hope that that is not what Lent is for us, a time of mere self-pity as we observe the cross from a safe distance. Yes, fast, pray, inwardly reflect, but don't miss Jesus' call to follow him. Don't miss the bid to walk in the servant's song. His call to journey with him. Jesus calls for us to embark on a, on a path of the cross, a path of self-denial and little deaths where we choose to exalt God instead of ourselves. I mean, to get practical, little deaths may mean to refrain from gossip, which may be socially costly. It may mean to find those without a friend group in the cafeteria, sitting alone and go, going to sit down with them. It may mean you drop the pretense and confess your sins to someone, putting to death your ego. It may mean the death of a dream, of a job, a hope, a relationship, if they stand at odds with faithfulness. Christ calls us to put to death those things within us that elevate ourselves and dethrone God. Little deaths may be small, but they are costly. I was thinking about that. I mean, if we had to do them all at once, I don't think we could, but God in his grace takes his time with us. The call to enter the kingdom, is, it, it requires our everything. So what God does is he trains us up to engage in the practice of little deaths, learning the art of self-denial in Christ's exaltation. Why? Well, it's not because death is in, intrinsically good. It's because death is the only road that leads to resurrection and transformation, and transfiguration. 
Death is not intrinsically good, but death is the only path that leads to resurrection. The only thing that can experience resurrection, new life, is something that has died. And maybe it's why servant leadership helps create a healthy work environment. Little deaths leading to life in a company. We'll talk more about the spirituality of little resurrections. But for now, hold in view the path of the servant, the path of the cross, and, and see it in his call to follow. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for Jesus, for the suffering servant who did what we could not. I thank you that he did not exalt himself on earth, but humbled himself to a cross, which is our only hope for life. I pray that we would not stand back and just be grateful, but we, we would follow him. I pray that you would lead us on the path of the cross. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.